Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This week on the show, I have an amazing guest, Bronwyn Schwergert. Now, Bronwyn has a master's degree in counseling and another in nutrition. She is a public speaker, an author, and a licensed psychotherapist. And in our chat today, we talk about emotions, processing emotions. We also talk about those emotions that we don't like talking about, anger, hatred, and even shame. And we talk about intuition, anxiety, depression, and how our emotions can relate to everything that we do, including our actions. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. And on a side note, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you let or left a review. If you could do that, I would be most grateful. Your subscribing tells others that this is a great podcast to listen to. All right, let's have a listen in. Hi, I'm Kate Boyle, and welcome to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you health information from diet and lifestyle to movement and nutrition. My aim is to bring you bite-sized pieces of information that you can instigate into your everyday life to change your health. and welcome back to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. I'm super excited to have Bronwyn here today. Bronwyn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, today we're going to be diving into emotions, but before we do that, can you share with listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I am a marriage and family therapist here in California, And I actually became a therapist because I myself fell into a very, very severe depression and tried many different therapists. And each and every time, even though I was barely functional, I thought to myself, I know I could do better if I were they. So um, yeah, part of me getting better was actually going back to school and getting a graduate degree in counseling and becoming a therapist. And I'm happy to say, I really, really love what I do. And my own life experience has taught me more than any books, more than any teachers ever could. Yeah. I think life experience, like a majority of people that I speak to in sort of the health and wellness field, they have some personal journey that's led them to become, you know, what they do. And I think it's, part of the process. And I think it gives you the empathy, you know, and, you know, also the relatability if you've been through something yourself. Empathy, relatability, um, kind of the desire, the passion, insight, and, you know, wisdom. Wisdom is something it's really learned by doing. That's what wisdom is. It's not the same, like in Spanish, I speak Spanish and in Spanish and probably other languages, there are two very distinct words for to know there is conocer, which is like to recognize or to know something on a, you know, just listening to someone or someone introduces you to something. And there's saber, which is, you know, the root is, it starts with S-A, which is the same root for like, we use the word savvy, or in Spanish, it's called sabiduría. It's wisdom. It's like an experiential knowledge. One of the words that we use is savor. So like when we savor food, we're experiencing the food. Someone could tell us how the food tastes. And that would be a different kind of understanding than if we taste it firsthand. Yeah, 100% agree. And I know even in the field that I'm in, in nutrition and Pilates, I got into it because I was having eating eating issues, you know, disorders, um, and I had a lot of injuries. So I wanted to fix my own body. And again, the passion from doing that led me to help others. So I can definitely relate. Now, I know that you have been called an evocative psychotherapist. Can you sort of explain and, you know, expand on that a little bit further too? Yeah, well, I call myself an evocative psychotherapist. Um, And the reason is a lot, and I mentioned this as well, is a lot of therapy, at least in the United States these days, is comes from really more of a intellectual what we call CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of like all the rage. And uh, it just doesn't really work. It doesn't really stick because it's really like, oh, well, you think that, let me help you change your thoughts. And it's like, we're not brains in a jar. Um, 
And as much as we try to change our thoughts, you know, long-term studies on this type of therapy, the CBT show, it doesn't really help short-term studies show it does um, because we can change our thoughts. And what I have found is when people actually change their feelings, uh, then their thoughts naturally change and they're permanently changed. And so if someone were to come to me and they're really depressed, a CBT therapy therapist would help them like change their thoughts. You're, you know, instead of saying I'm a failure, you can just say I make some mistakes. Okay. Well, that's somewhat helpful, I suppose. But anyone who's been through a serious depressive episode knows that there's like a, a very bodily experience, an embodied experience where, and, and I have come to believe that depression and anxiety and panic attacks and mania and even psychosis is really anger that is held inside of our bodies because we haven't felt safe or entitled or validated to be angry or to express it and channel it in a healthy way, such as assertiveness and boundaries. And we need someone to evoke that out of us, to give us permission to go, you know what? Yeah, my parents, that was not okay. You're right. You're right. Thank you for, for mirroring that for me. Cause I kind of question my own self. I question my own judgment. I I've never had someone mirror to me and reflect to me that I was right to be angry and that that wasn't okay. And now that you're giving me permission to feel that way and I'm channeling that, I'm putting it into words. Now that helps it uh, escape from my body. It's being externalized. It's being expressed. And now I can have these assertive words and create these boundaries. And guess what? That anger is now externalized and I'm free of my depression or anxiety or mania or whatever that is. Yeah. And I assume too, a lot of people probably don't process their emotions, different emotions because they're painful. So what can happen if we're not processing our emotions? You know, it's so funny just because they're invisible. We think they just like float away or evaporate. And I, what I say is that, yes, they are invisible, but they are as real and if not more real, our feelings than anything we can see or touch that is palpable. They store in our bodies and they will make us sick. And when you say emotions, so yeah, sadness, but you know, most people feel some entitlement to be sad and to grieve. But if that sadness is kind of mixed in with betrayal or abandonment or rage or feeling neglected by that person or hatred, oh, oh. And then we say, I don't want to hate my mother. And what I tell people is, you know what? All humans feel the whole gamut, the whole spectrum of feelings. We're not robots. We're messy. And we absolutely feel feelings like love and hatred towards the same people at the same time, if we're honest, towards everyone. I have women with postpartum depression who are like, I kind of hate and resent my child. I'm like, yeah, me too. And if we're honest, we all do. And when we can put it into words and know that those feelings are just feelings, they're not good or bad. They're not right or wrong. They're not sinful or amoral. They're feelings. They're involuntary. Our actions, now that's important, that we can judge, that we can criticize. Feelings are just feelings. But if we try to stuff them and repress them because we judge them, they're actually more likely to influence and shape our behaviors than less. Yeah. Well, I kind of feel too that, you know, maybe it depends on how you were brought up and what messaging you were given, but it's not okay in a lot of, you know, society to express your anger or, you know, express certain types of sadness or rage. Yeah, but I think... You know, I, I have my own podcast. It's called Angry at the Right Things. That's how much anger, you know, I, I like to talk about anger. Um, and what I say on my trailer is, you know, envision anger like fire. A lot of people are deathly afraid because a fire out of control can be so destructive and absolutely kill us and burn down the house. But you take a fire and you put it in a contained space like a fire pit or a fireplace. 
you know, today in our Western world, we don't appreciate that. But it wasn't until very long that you really couldn't live without one. You, for cooking, for heating, for lighting, for sterilizing instruments, um, fire ref refines and purifies and is absolutely essential when it's contained. So anger, when it's contained, doesn't have to be violent. Even rage doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to involve violence or saying hurtful things to punish people. It can just be expressed with someone who listens, who hears you. What's shareable is bearable. So if I'm telling a therapist, and not all therapists will share our feelings, but or a friend, a trusted friend, who really hears me and gets angry with me, I'm sharing that anger. Now it's out of my body and it is finally evaporating because it's externalized, because I feel safe. And so what's shareable is bearable, even rage, even hatred, if we express it in two words, feeling validated by someone, it no longer controls us and it's not violent and it's not evil. Yeah. Well, I know even if you're just having a conversation with a friend and you can, you know, vent a little bit about what may be happening in your life, you always feel so much better after it. But I know women tend to do that a lot more than what men do just generally. Yeah. And look how it affects men. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, isn't it? <laughs> I think it the, the anger stays in their body and it, it absolutely can shape their behavior. And along the lines, you know, talking about you know, hatred and anger. I know you talk about a lot about shame too. And I think this is one of those areas that I know that it's, you know, my feelings about shame is that you feel shame about feeling shame. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how I feel. But, you know, obviously people feel very differently. But can you share a little bit more about shame and how you help people process through shame as well? Yes. So sh I'm glad you brought that up. Um, shame is the one feeling that really shouldn't be a feeling. It's like the color black where it just takes over. You could have all the other colors there and you would never know it. Shame is debilitating. It's uh, uh, paralyzing. There's nothing beneficial about shame and it doesn't evaporate when we put it into words. The only thing that undoes shame is someone saying, you know what? That's not shameful because you're human. And all humans make mistakes and all humans fail and all humans feel hate and rage and, you know, bitterness. And we grow up, if we grow up feeling shamed for our humanity, it turns us into narcissists where we have to present a persona. We, we dissociate from our real selves and we present a persona of ourselves that's really not us. Um, and that, yeah. That gets out of control. So if somebody is, you know, listening in and thinking, yeah, I probably could improve how I process my emotions a little bit more. Sure. Where yeah. would they start? So uh, I have a what's called a soul words list that I use. It's on the Internet. If you just Google soul words list, you should find it. It's a free one page sheet and it has about 80 different feeling words. I use it with every single client and I use it with myself, honestly, like I have it on my phone. And if I'm somewhere and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, what am I feeling right now? I don't know. And I get it out and I look it up and I, I take my time and I say, you know what I, I, so let me give you an example. Like maybe eight months ago, my daughter was still living at home. She's 19 and we got in this huge fight and <laughs> A couple hours later, when I'm calmed down, I look over my soul words list. I'm like, what the hell just happened? I don't know. So I'm looking over, what was I feeling when we were in the kitchen at the same time? And it, she was so quiet. And when I attempted to ask her questions about how she's doing, about her life, she just shuts me down. Okay. I was feeling rejected. <laughs> I was feeling really awkward and uncomfortable because I realized during this time of reflection and reflection is really key. I know meditation's the huge rage, but I'm not a meditation fan. I'm a reflection fan. I don't think humans need to clear our minds. I think we need to create space in our minds for our thoughts and our conscience and our gut and our feelings to kind of free form and for us to reflect and introspect and contemplate. So I was, doing that after this fight, just kind of reviewing it. 
and looking at, I learned so much about myself. I learned that what I did with her is what I kind of, the, the level of discomfort I felt in her presence when there was silence that I, I honestly feel that with everyone all the time when I'm with another person, it can't be silent. And so, and I know a lot of women relate to this. So I'll break out like good questions and no wonder I became a good therapist. Cause I learned to ask good questions to break that silence. And when my daughter shut me down, by the way, that works with like 99% of all people, but not with my daughter. And so she's like, I don't want to answer your questions. Now I'm feeling rejected. And I just learned so much about myself, looking at that words list, giving my permission, uh, myself permission to feel rejected and to own it and learning my own triggers and why I react the way I do. And then from that, I ended up apologizing to her and, and asking her to hold me accountable, that that's not fair to her. That's my trigger. Me feeling awkward in the presence of another person when it's silent, that's a me problem. That's not her. And I made it a her problem. And I apologized. And and that was really powerful. Yeah. Well, I think that that whole scenario I've just explained is very powerful. Just me thinking about it then, I think a lot of people will reflect on the fight, but they usually just play it over and over. They don't sort of explore what they might have been feeling at the time or what the other person might have been feeling and how their actions, you know, may have played out. So I think, you know, having that reflection on and having that words lift could be really powerful because sometimes those situations are very overwhelming too. And you kind of, you know, it all happens at once and you feel very overwhelmed and you can't really work out, you know, what you were feeling at the time. Yes. And going back to the shame piece, you can't have shame in order to do this. Shame is going to stop you dead in your tracks. So in order for me to reflect and look at those feeling words, I have to not have any shame. I have to go, you know what? I just blew up at my 19-year-old daughter. I'm human. That's okay. I can accept that about myself. I don't love it, but I'm going to go inward and I'm going to reflect and have some introspection. And I, I really have to be okay with my humanity there. Shame is going to keep us from the apology. It's going to keep us from the humility. It's going to keep us from the authenticity in order to do that. And do you generally recommend then that if people are looking to explore processing their emotions, it's shame is probably a good place to start then, or does it really matter where you dive into? I mean, just having that permission to feel the full spectrum of feelings really helps dismantle shame. Um, I also lead my clients sometimes in an exercise if they grew up with like a lot of shame, which I think a lot of us do, um, where they imagine themselves like they'll pick out like a memory. Um, let's say they're age eight and their dad's like shaming them for something that's just normal human stuff, normal eight-year-old stuff. And so they'll imagine themselves at that age and um, put all their shame in like a big cardboard box. And they're imagining their father right standing right in front of them. And they're giving their father the box. And they say, here you go. This isn't mine. I've been carrying it around all this time but I'm giving it back to you because it's not my shame. It belongs to you. And that can be really powerful. I do a lot of experiential exercises like that. A lot of inner child kind of experiential exercises. Mm, I can imagine that that would be very powerful, even just going back to your childhood memories and, um, you know, sort of exploring what you were feeling at that time because your emotions seem to be very heightened when you're a kid. I'm not sure why that is personally, but I know that that's how I felt when I was a child, that I sort of felt like I felt everything a whole lot more than probably what I do now, but maybe because you don't have that reasoning, you know, and that life experience and like what you were saying before, that wisdom that comes with it. Well, I would argue, Kate, that you're parenting your own younger version of yourself and the way you are parenting little Kate is saying, hey, hey, you know what? you don't hate that person. Of course you don't. You're that you need to look at the good side. You need to give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's what you're doing to little Kate. She's still feeling those feelings, but we as adults parent our own younger selves. And that's what really ultimately I found to be the foundation of healing is when our adult self looks upon our young child self 
and says, you know what? You have permission to feel all those feelings. I will validate you. I prioritize your feelings, your needs, your limits, your limitations. You can get angry with me. You're safe to have all of those feelings with me. And you have my unconditional approval and acceptance. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to reject you or abandon you. Well, that's definitely probably something that I can, uh, you know, add on board to parenting my own kids because I know, you know, when you're trying to, you know, handle kids and express your emotions and understand their emotions, that that for some parents can be really difficult, especially if you almost feel like you're butting heads a bit too. Yeah. But, you know, our, our feelings really run the world. They really do. And so developing an emotional vocabulary and giving our children an emotional vocabulary is the most powerful thing ever. Um, You know, to say to a five-year-old child to say, you know what, it's not okay that you just hit your sister, but I see how angry you are. And I would be angry too, because she just stole your toy. So you give them permission to be angry. Of course you're angry, Johnny. Your sister just bonked you in the head. But what you can't do is bonk her back. So really, you know, that distinction, feelings are great. They're fine. We validate them. We endorse them. They're not good or bad. They're not right or wrong. Um, Giving them that validation is really huge. And it gives them an emotional vocabulary. And they feel seen. And they feel accepted and they feel that unconditional love. Oh, I can be angry and I can make mistakes and mom still loves me. Yeah. And I guess it refers to what you are saying before that you can process your emotions, but your actions don't always need to reflect, you know, or get to that point where you're exploding if you're processing your emotions. Absolutely. So that anger is really key because the more I feel like I've got to suppress it and play like some kind of nurturing good mother that, you know, sometimes honestly I can be, but if I'm going to be honest, a lot of time I'm not, the more I suppress and sequester or attempt to sequester that anger, the more it's going to leak out in the most dysfunctional ways. Yeah. And if somebody has past trauma, say from childhood or a previous relationship or something, Does processing those emotions, is it different to just say processing what's happening right now in your everyday life? Um, Okay. So give me a little example. So say you've had trauma as a child and you know that that trauma is affecting what you do now in your everyday life. So maybe you were yelled at as a child and now you're yelling at your kids constantly. Are you going back to process the trauma you had as a child or are you processing how you're acting right now or is it a combination of the both yeah so it's just funny um so time is like the third dimension but you know we humans see it as like oh well that was back then this is now but the goal is to be an integrated human not to compartmentalize ourselves and part of that is like seeing ourselves as like i am five-year-old bronwyn right now like integrating myself and being aware that all of me is here right now. That's not something that happened in the past that like, there's no divider there. Um, So to be integrated, to be whole, we really need to see it as all one. It's all affecting our, our, us in the present. Absolutely. And also, you know, the earliest, our earliest uh, memories, our earliest experiences really create a template for us in our brains, how relationships work, how feelings work, how anger works. Um, We call that imprinting. And we hear about it, you know, with babies, the the imprint, you know, when they first nurse or whatever. But I mean, that's that imprint is there for us for life. And really, it's only by our own pausing and reflecting and being able to see that imprint and what it's doing in our present day that we're able to change it. Yeah. And I know thinking about things previously in the past, even in my own life, I've caught myself a couple of times in situations and, and, and hit that realization point that, 
you know, oh, I'm doing this because I've learned this behavior from, you know, this person. And then therefore that's affecting how I now interact with the next person. So um, I think that realization is very powerful, but sometimes it's not always, I know sometimes somebody else has pointed it out to me rather than me realizing it myself. But that's totally normal. I mean, I, I regret so many things I did when my daughter was younger. That's totally normal human. And in fact, if we don't regret, those are the people I worry about. Those are the people that, that concern me the most as a therapist. Those are the people who never come to therapy and will never come to therapy. The people who are like, nope, nope, I'm good. I've always been good. I always will be good. I refuse to reflect. I refuse to be introspective. I refuse to own these behaviors because I'm just so good. So, I mean, it's hard to admit these things about ourselves, but it's a good heart. It's a really good heart. And to apologize to our children at any age to say, you know what? I'm so sorry I yell at you. I was yelled at and I swore I would never do that to my own kids. And here I am doing it and I'm so sorry. So that's powerful because that shows our children that mom is good and bad, that mom struggles with anger just like I do, that mom is human. She's three dimensional. And it shows, it models an apology, that apologies are like the best thing ever. Doing that for our children is the most powerful thing we can ever do for them. Oh, that's good. We do that with our girls. We make sure that they apologize to each other. (laughs) And even when they sometimes don't want to, because they think they're in the right, we still, you know, follow through and say, well, the apology is important. So it's nice to hear that as well. Well, but you need to apologize to them. That's what I'm saying. That's the the modeling that they need. Yeah, which I do too. So I definitely am following that as well. Now, what do you want everyone to know about emotions? So if people are just sort of listening in and they're finding this conversation interesting, what would you love them to know about emotions and processing emotions? Well, emotions are not shameful because they're there for a really good reason. You know, we hear people talk about anger management, for example. I hate that term. We don't manage anger. It's there for a good reason. When a a light on the dashboard of your car comes on, you go, oh, I just need to manage this light. It's really annoying. I just got to turn it off. No, it's there to tell you, check under the hood, something is wrong. So anger is not shameful. It's not to be managed. How we channel our anger, of course, is important because yes, it can burn down a house like a fire and be destructive. But anger in and of itself is, there's nothing bad about it. It's actually good. It's there for a really legitimate reason. Let's find out why. Let's look under the hood. That's what's important. It's it's sending you a really important message that something needs to change. Hi, everyone. I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that you can download a free 15-minute core Pilates workout that I've designed especially for you to work your entire body and your core, including your pelvic floor and deep layer of abdominals to really build strength, stability, and mobility. This is a nice quick workout you can fit into your day. It's definitely 100% doable. You don't need any equipment to do it. And I guarantee once you finish your 15 minutes of Pilates, you will feel stronger, more energized, taller, and really joyful and happy for moving your body and getting those endorphins moving. So don't forget, head on over to the show notes and download that free core workout and try some Pilates with me. I can't wait to see you on your mat. And if people are in a situation where they're like, yes, I know I'm feeling anger right now, but I'm not in a place where I can or I don't have the time right now to sort of delve into and experience that and and work through that. Do they work through it at a later stage? Do they see a therapist? What's the process for that? I mean, so I'm a big fan of just taking space, time and space out and reflecting. That might be going for a walk, listening to music, it doesn't have to be just sitting and doing nothing. Um, my Some of my best epiphanies have been while I've been out running. There's something about being very active and being outside that our brains kind of just really start reflecting. Um, 
But that reflection piece is really important, regardless of how we do it. And uh, to look and go, okay, I can't be, I can't look into this right now, but I will look into it because there's something fueling, there's something stoking my anger and it needs to change. And, uh, and so that, that's just crucial because otherwise it's not going to go away and it, it's going to leak out in really dysfunctional ways in and through us. Yeah. And I know you were saying before that a lot of the work you do and, uh, you know, with processing emotions is often linked to anxiety and depression and there's underlying, you know, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I'll give you a really fun example. Uh, I talk about this in one of my podcast episodes. So I've had a couple occasions to look back on times where I have fallen into a very uh, steep and very uh, acute depressive episode. One of them, and and a couple of them, of course, were when I was around my mom as an adult. And um, one of them, she did something horrible. And uh, I felt very humiliated and betrayed by her. It was out in public, so I couldn't react. Um, And I didn't feel angry, but looking back, I know that I was, but what I felt is I felt myself sink. I can't even describe it. I felt like I was sinking into a depressive episode so quickly. I mean, it was just like instantaneous. And I felt like the sinking sensation where every, like, it's like a big dark cloud. It it was like so fast. And I had it before with my mom and other occasion, but this time my daughter was present. And she was about 16 at the time. And she witnessed everything happening. And I look over at her and she's making eye contact with me and she starts laughing. And I start laughing. And you know what? It wasn't the laughter per se. What it was, was her laughter because she didn't need to say anything and she didn't say anything. Her laughter told me, I'm a witness. I see how crazy your mother is. She is absolutely insane. And I am here validating that right now. And my sinking into that depression, I just came right back out, like just out and free. And, and because I'd had similar episodes uh, happen in similar ways, the other ones, I didn't get out for like a good few days. But this one, it was just her sharing my feelings, validating them with me, made all the difference. Mm. I can definitely relate to that. But I think that's so interesting too on that, you know, currently they're sort of saying that there's a loneliness epidemic and more and more people aren't connecting with people in the community and, you know, we're going online more. And you can see how if we're not having those connections with people, then it will be harder for us to feel validation and to process our emotions and, you know, affect our state of mind, whether or not we become more anxious and things. So I think that's really powerful to think about right there also. Well, yeah. And honestly, again, I'm not a big fan of a lot of therapists, even though I am one, because you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I have gone to therapists and I've had clients come to me and they're like, Oh, I told my therapist about what happened with my mom. And they said, well, and they, they defended the mom. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh my God. Like it, it makes it worse. So if you go to someone and you say, can you believe my mom did this? And they're like, well, you know, I can see why she, you know, And now you went, you, now you're more depressed because now you're even more angry and it's all internalized. And that person you, you reached out to, you were vulnerable with, you looked to for validation. Now you feel betrayed and abandoned by them. So I kind of get why people are secluding and sequestering themselves from other people, because that's what we do to each other. A lot of the time when we need just a shared experience. Yeah. And I think too, sometimes, you know, people do feel judged when they're they're trying to share something vulnerable and they just want you to listen. They don't want you to solve the problem. They just want you to hear them um, rather than yeah. trying to fix things. Absolutely. 
yeah, I have lots of talks with my husband about that. Even <laughs> to this day. So do I. <laughs> but I'm <laughs> not sure if that's a male-female thing or what, because I'll often say, you know, um, he'll be, well, just do this or just do that. And, or, you know, then you'll stop complaining. And I'm like, I'm just trying to share the, my frustration. I don't want you to fix it. Mm-hmm. This is just a way of me to process what's happening too. Well, I think it stems from, you know, another memory I have. So when I first fell into that really dark, depressive episode that that galvanized me to go to school and become a therapist, we had just relocated uh, about an hour and a half away. And I came back to visit my hometown and a good friend of mine, I started crying and a good friend of mine, she's like, no, 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 no don't cry. Don't cry. You have two homes now you have two homes. And, um, you know, it just made me feel worse when she did that, to be honest, I knew her intention was good, but here she is telling me, don't cry. What I need, the reason why I cried for that short window of time I was with her is because she was one of the friends I missed so desperately when we relocated And now I'm in her presence and what my body needed to do is just cry. What I needed from her is her to look me in the eye and say, Bronwyn, I, I hear how sad and lonely you are and how hard this move's been on you. And I don't blame you for crying. And i just want to give you a hug right now. And yet we don't do that. I think in part, because we think it's going to make it worse for people like, oh, now Bronwyn's going to like cry buckets for the next five hours. I don't know. But it makes it better, not worse. And yet I might cry more for a few minutes, but now I feel better. I feel relieved. Our tears are loaded with cortisol, which is a major stress hormone. And a hug, that gives me lots of oxytocin. I mean, there's biological reasons that I feel a lot better when I get that. But if we feel responsible for other people's feelings, we can't do that. And that's one of the boundaries I teach my clients is, um, I'm only responsible for my feelings. You're only responsible for your feelings, which gives me permission, gives you permission when I'm crying, it gives you permission to go, Oh, those are her feelings, not mine. I don't need to manage them by talking her out of them or telling her not to cry or trying to convince her how great things are. Actually, I can allow her to have her feelings because they're hers and I can share them with her. I can enter into her, her sadness with her. Yeah. I think that's a great lesson that we can probably all think about. Cause I think, you know, if somebody is crying, it can sometimes make people feel uncomfortable because they don't know what to do. So then they just try to, to comfort them in a way to hope to get them to stop crying. So then they don't feel as uncomfortable with the crying. But like you said, when you cry, you feel so much better after having a cry and just letting it out um, that I think that as the the listener or the person supporting, you just need to be there and, and let them cry and know that you're, you're there with them, even if it's, you know, by a hug or holding their hand or whatever it may be. Yeah. So if you start crying and I say, you know what, Kate's sad, those are her feelings, not mine. I'm not responsible for her feelings. Um, I don't have to talk her out of them. I can give her permission. You know, I can just sit there and go, yeah, I see how sad you are. I'd be sad too. And, and, and we, we put so much pressure on ourselves. Like, oh my God, she's crying. I have to, I have to stop her from crying. I have to talk her out of her sadness. Like, what do I say? How about nothing? How about like, I don't know what to say. That's a great thing to say. I don't know if you tell me that your dog just died and you're crying, I can say, Oh crap, that sucks. I don't even know what to say. And that's a wonderful thing to hear someone say, I don't know what to say. Cause that validates. There's really no words for that. There's really nothing for you to say. And I know if I'm the one that's crying, I'll often feel embarrassed for crying <laughs> in front of somebody else because I think, oh, it's going to make them feel uncomfortable. Now I feel uncomfortable because I'm crying in front of other people. Um, but I think, you know, as the crier, you just have to just let it out. <laughs> but see, you're not responsible for their discomfort. That's on them. Those are their feelings. They belong to them. You are only responsible for your feelings. 
So yeah, it does make some people very uncomfortable. That's not your business. Your business is to feel better and find those few people who can comfort you and see you and validate you. Yeah. Well, on the rare occasions it has happened, I've still felt better and, you know, it mm. almost it almost creates a, a bond between you two because you have been vulnerable in their presence. Vulnerability is hard to do, but it is the most life-affirming bonding experience if someone can meet you there. Mm. It's just, uh, I think, again, it's one of those areas that people can struggle with too, being vulnerable with other people. I mean, we're human. If we choose not to be, then we feel like this, this aloneness, even around other people, we feel very alone. It's, it's human to be vulnerable and share feelings, but we have to discern for ourselves who's a safe person because certainly not all people are safe people. Yeah. And they have to, they have to earn our trust to be a safe person. Okay, good. Cause that was my next question. How do people work out who is the safe person to do that with? Yeah. So give me a question for that because I mean, I think where I'm at right now, where I stand on that is, is people are, are continuing to always have to earn my trust. Like I've had a friend for 40 years that I have looked back on and reflected on and said, you know what? I actually don't trust you. And I've recently ended the friendship. Um, so when we reflect, I think that's really important. We look back and we go, you know what? That was untrustworthy. That was kind of weird. That was kind of snaky. Um, I don't think it's worth it being your friend because I don't feel safe to be around you. I often too have intuitions about people and maybe mm. it's reading the situation or do you know what I mean? It might pop up in conversation and I'm thinking I could share something vulnerable right now, but there is something that holds me back usually. Not just, I'm just mm. saying it can happen. Um, and it's usually some something in me, like my intuition saying, this is not the right place right now, or, you know, it just doesn't feel right. Okay. Well, I'm curious what about your intuition tells you what that's like for you? Like, do you feel it or yeah. Tell me more. Cause I'm, I'm a huge believer in intuition. Like your gut knows. Well, usually I feel it physically. So I feel it in the pit of my stomach that it's not the right, yeah, it might yeah. not be the right person or the right time. Um, but yeah, I just yeah. get a, a feeling in my stomach that's like, yeah, no, not right now. Okay. So you feel it in your stomach. I, okay. This is so interesting. You know, the ancient humans until very, the last, I don't know how many hundreds of years didn't really pay attention to this organ in our head. They really paid attention to their gut to their chest area, to their visceral area, to the throat. I mean, they really believed that our brain, so to speak, our mind, our heart is really here. And um, I really am a big believer that, that Westerners are really missing out because I see that all the time with my clients. Like they're like, I just had this feeling in the pit of my stomach and I did it anyway. And man, do I regret that. I'm like, yeah, you're overriding your gut our gut is like brilliant. It hasn't been, you know, brainwashed like our brain. So, um, but so for you, was that like when someone wasn't making eye contact or when you heard like a certain tone of their voice and it's probably been a multitude of things, but like what comes to mind where your gut felt that sensation? Tone of voice is a big one. Um, and then, cause I've had it with a few clients too, where I, I can feel it straight away that this is not the client for me. Um, mm. Sometimes it's the way they say things just in conversation. It might be what they're saying and how they're saying it um, with mm. the tone. Um, mm -hmm. Then, yeah, I can feel it. And I'm like, yeah. And the few times that it has happened, it's I've been right. Like, And I've ignored it. When I was younger, I would ignore it, especially if I was working for somebody else and you know, I thought, oh no, you know, I'm, I've got a boss. I don't control who I'm taking on as a client. I've got to push through. And then there have been incidences that have occurred. And I've been like, well, yes, I was right from the start. And then the next time it happened, 
I stood up from the start and said, no, you know, I don't think this is, the, you're the right client for me. I don't think this relationship is going to work. Um, and I felt so much better once I said that straight away. So, yeah. I love that. So they were people who were very unsafe, I'm gathering. Yes, but not, they hadn't actually done anything unsafe. The first person did lead to doing something unsafe. The second one, my body had that same feeling. So I stopped before we progressed any further. Oh, okay. Good for you. So you really caught on fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I will say with these two, these two examples were male clients. Um, I haven't, I've had it in a different way with a female, but not in that almost predatory sense that these were in, in those situations. So I, you know, this, I sound like a granny here. I'm 52, but the older I get, I mean, the more I believe in the wisdom of really listening to our body, listening to our gut, listening to our feelings, listening to our conscience. Um, and I say that because, I mean, I have heard so many horror stories of really people who are professionals, like doctors being unsafe people, people that you you really want to trust, that have all the accolades, that have jumped through all the hoops, that have all the licensing being unsafe. And I'm sure you've had a story or two that you've heard as well. So yeah, we really do. Um, so whatever that, you know, whatever does that for you. So if it's a tone of voice, obviously if the content of what they're saying, that's like, we can all kind of see that, but if it's a tone, if it's like a weird eye contact thing, um, you know, whatever that is, just really go with your gut. There's like a inner wisdom there that we cannot override. We really cannot override that. Yeah. And I think it takes time to listen to it too, because you sometimes you have to, like I did, go through situations where you are ignoring it and then realize, no, at the end of the day, your body is trying to communicate with you. And it doesn't matter if you have a boss who's telling you something differently mm-hmm. or, you know, your safety is, is yeah. you know, should be paramount and first and foremost. You're only responsible for your feelings. You're the only one. Yeah, we have to keep coming back to that, I think. <laughs> we really do. We really do. That's that's the all we can do. It's funny along those lines, you know, a lot of women are what I call pleasers where they'll override their gut. They'll override their feelings just to make everyone happy. And the thing is, we can't be responsible for other people's feelings we, we can't, it's actually not possible. Um, and we will die trying. Yeah. Well, that was definitely me earlier on. I think I am still a work in progress, but you know, whether or not it's, you know, going through those experiences or having more wisdom as you get older, you know, or, or realizing that time, you know, you only get a certain finite amount of time. So you then start guarding that more and your emotions better and things like that. I'm not sure what it is, but I know I've learned over time to hone that in better anyway. But the other thing with that is we have to be okay to disappoint people. I definitely find that hard. I will still always try to follow through, but I'm better at saying no from the outset so that I avoid disappointing those people, you know, closer to the tape. I'd rather be upfront with them now. Yeah. Well, I gave a talk on parenting to a bunch of mothers of young children. And I basically say um, that the job of the mother, the job of the parent is to accept the inevitable disappointment that our children will bring us every day of our lives. If we're honest, those feelings of disappointment are ours. They belong to us, not the child. And it's our job to accept them and not try to put them on the child to not disappoint us. And the job, the job description of a child is to disappoint the hell out of us. <laughs> That's their job description. And if they can disappoint the hell out of their parents and still feel loved and accepted by us, then they're going to grow up with the ego strength to say no whenever they need to say no, whether that's up front or later on. They're going to have the ego strength to walk away from the abusive partner, to walk out of the abusive job. 
they're going to have the ego strength to do all those things because they are okay. They know that they're only responsible for their feelings and no one else's, and they're okay to disappoint everyone else. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful message that everybody can uh, definitely take away. Now, before we wrap up, I always ask my guests if there was one thing that a listener after listening to today's podcast could walk away and instigate straight away, what would you suggest? Mm, Goodness, one thing. Um, Just know that it's okay to be human, that we are not robots. We are messy, messy creatures, and we can feel all kinds of feelings They're not right or wrong or good or bad. And uh, the only feelings that we are responsible for are our own, which means we have to reflect and know what we're feeling in order to be responsible for those feelings. Yeah. And I think reflection is a big piece. We probably don't take enough time to reflect on our emotions and how we're feeling. Yeah. We focus a lot on meditation these days. And like I said, I don't, it's not bad, but like, we don't need to clear our mind. We need to like, gaze and just let things kind of free flow up to the surface and take time to parse through it all. Yeah. Well, I was listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about, you know, a a moment in time and that we have three experiences of that moment in the sense that we anticipate the moment, like they were talking about Mm -hmm. a holiday. So you anticipate the holiday, then you live the holiday. That's the second point. And then you reflect on the holiday. So all these moments in time, we have these three points that we will look at them, but sometimes we anticipate a lot, we experience it, but we never reflect on it or vice versa. So exploring those three points can be really powerful. Yes. And we humans tend to mess all of that up because we idealize the holiday. Then when we're actually having the holiday, we're like, oh man, this is nothing like I thought it'd be. And then we reflect back and, you know, it's, it's funny what we do. Yeah, we definitely change things, don't we? And I think we that anticipation, we can often build it up to be so big and then be disappointed when we're actually living the moment. <laughs> I agree, yes. Okay, so where can listeners reach out and connect with you, Brahman? So I just have my podcast. I would love for everyone to hear more on all of this. Um, it's Angry at the Right Things, wherever you find your podcasts. Perfect. So we'll link that up in the show notes and we'll also um, link up the emotion sheet as well in the show notes and um, your contact details too. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're so welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for listening into the podcast. Please hit subscribe to be updated for each time we release a new podcast.